Uh, so we've been in Genesis uh, now for the last several weeks, and uh, we have gotten to the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, the last two weeks we've been in uh, verses 4 to 25, and in verses 4 to 25, the way that the author sets things up is to talk about man's relationship uh, with God, much like Bryce was saying, uh, with each other and with creation. And so we see in verses 4 to 25 that the relationship with God was one that was intimate. God gathered up some dust and he breathed his life into it, got real close and made man. God's relationship with man is one of intimacy. It's one of submission because he gives a prohibition not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or else he will die. So submission, intimacy, relationship with God. There's also a relationship with one another. Remember Adam uh, was made first and then Eve came from Adam and then we see that there's difference and similarity. There's difference in that his partner is a woman. His, his partner is his helper, his complement. She's different than him. It was also marked by similarity. She's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It's a relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with creation. Relationship with creation was one of stewardship because Adam's given the responsibility to have dominion over creation. He's to tend and keep the garden. He's to name the animal. He's to be fruitful and multiply. And when you put all of these things together, it was literally heaven on earth. Communion with God, compelling work, and intimate marriage. And that's the picture we have. And when it's in view, we see just how much Adam and Eve stood to lose if they couldn't follow God's prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sure enough, they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. They lost. And the account of that loss is what is under our consideration this morning. So let's read it together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they were heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The word of the Lord. This passage is important for us on lots of fronts, but I want to highlight just two. The first one is it tells us what's actually wrong with the world. Beatrice Webb, uh, she was British, she was a sociologist, she was a social reformer, she founded the School of Economics way back uh, in the early 1900s. And she kept a diary during her career. And later in her career, she writes about the early years of her career, and here's what she said. She said, I staked all, at the beginning, I staked all on the goodness, the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts of man. How little you can count on changing some of these. 
For instance, the appeal of wealth and power. By any change in politics, by any change in knowledge, by any change in science, they will be of no avail against the bad impulse. Now, according to Beatrice Webb, she does not think that our problem is one that politics or education or technology is going to be able to fix. The main problem, even though she's not a Christian, she calls a bad impulse, but what the Bible calls sin. And it all starts right here in our passage, Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, it gives us a paradigm for how evil works. That's why one of the other reasons it's important for us. We see that it all starts with temptation, verses 1 to 5. And that temptation gives birth to disobedience, and disobedience gives birth to shame. That's the cycle. That's the cycle not just for Adam and Eve, but it's also the cycle for you and for me. So let's start by looking at temptation. You see, it all starts when the serpent erupts on the scene, and it was quite unexpected. It should catch you off guard when you hear about the serpent. He shows up seemingly out of nowhere, and I bet it caught Eve off guard too. But he shows up suddenly, but he's also very subtle. It says that he's crafty. And so when he showed up to Eve, I think he had a way of showing up that was surprising but didn't freak her out. And that's the way he's going to show up to you too. See, when Satan shows up to you, he's not going to come as a serpent. I can almost guarantee you that. I can almost guarantee you he's not going to show up like you might see tomorrow night at Halloween with red tights on. Or with a pitchfork or with a tail. So how are you going to recognize him? When he shows up in your life. Well, you're going to recognize him not by what he looks like, but how he operates. He's going to do two things to you that he did to Adam and Eve right here in our passage. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to play on your strengths. And the second thing he's going to do is he's going to cause you to doubt God's goodness. Look, look see, see how he plays on their strengths in this passage? I mean, we've got to stop and remember all that God's done for Adam and Eve. He makes Adam and Eve from dust. He breathes into them. And that was totally on God's initiative. That's how he made Adam. Then he makes Eve. And he didn't make Eve because Adam asked him to. God just suddenly put Adam to sleep. He takes a rib from his side. And all of a sudden there's Eve. So both Adam and Eve owe their entire existence to God. And then he puts Adam and Eve in this beautiful world that he's created. He's given them a compelling job. And so you can see that they are the creatures and he is the creator. They are weak. God is strong. But then the serpent comes in. The serpent comes in in verse 5 and says, God knows that when you eat of of the tree, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. So to put it another way, Satan is saying, you really do want to be like God, don't you? Don't you want to be powerful? Don't you want to be all-knowing? You deserve this. Look how much God trusts you. And here I am, and I'm ready to help you unlock your potential. Do you see what he's doing? He's playing on their desire to be strong. And that's always how Satan works. See, the devil doesn't come at you when you're weak. This might be what you think. But he comes at you when you're strong. He comes at you when you're using and enjoying God's gifts. That's what's going on with Adam and Eve here. But God, on the other hand, God's most interested in coming to you in your weakness. 
when you fully identified as a creature and have no desire to have the responsibility of being creator. See, if Adam and Eve will just live their days as contingent creatures, totally dependent on God for everything, then they're going to work along the warp and woof of creation. But if they rise up in independence, if they rise up in protest to their subordinate state, then they're going to be working against the warp and woof of creation. Let me give you some examples of what this, how this plays out in your life. See, Satan comes to a beautiful person and he tells them to seduce, to use their beauty to seduce a potential lover. He's playing on the strength. Satan comes to a clever salesman and tells him or her to use their powers of persuasion to take a client for all they're worth. Comes in their strength. He comes to a wealthy person. He tells them that they deserve what their money can buy because they've worked so hard for it. Therefore, they should spend it on themselves. Comes to them in their strength. He comes to the parent whose kids are well-adjusted and he insists that their kids have become that way because of their superior parenting techniques and strategies. Strength. But if you're someone who's aware of your need for God, this won't occur. See, see, what if you're beautiful, but that thought's never registered with you because you're so aware of your great need for God? That's where your attention lies. What if you are charismatic, but you're in tune with how you can use that to manipulate others? What if you are brilliant, but you realize how that leads to pride? What if you are brilliant, but you know that at least in part that comes from a place of anxiety and a place of a need for control? See, if that's you, then you're living as a contingent creature. You're living a life of humility. You're living a life of repentance. You're living a life of weakness. You know you need God. You'll always be looking to God for resources. Satan's not going to be able to get a foothold in your life because you're so convinced that you have nothing to offer and God has committed himself fully to you to fill in the gaps. See, God is not so much about making you strong. He's much more about being your strength. And there's a huge difference. Just ask Adam and Eve. That's how Satan operates. He comes at you in your strength. But he also comes at you and he wants you to question God's goodness. Look at Adam, look, again, look at Adam and Eve. He's been unbelievably bountiful, hasn't he? I mean, he gives Eve to Adam and Adam sings. He puts them in the midst of a garden with beautiful trees and delicious fruit. He's laced this whole place with precious metals. He's given a vast array of wild animals. And underneath all of this physical abundance is a desire that God has to include man on the life that he has within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, it's not out of need for fellowship. It's not out of guilt that prompted God to create man. It's out of God's good pleasure. So here he is. Here's a God who's not rationed his goodness one bit to Adam and Eve. He's been really lavish with it, hasn't he? See, Eden is nothing short of utopia for no other reason than God just wants to give good gifts to his children. And then the serpent arrives. And not only does he want to play on their desire to be strong, he also wants to ruin their theology. 
You'll notice that Satan doesn't try to get Adam and Eve to be Satan worshipers. Satan doesn't try to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's existence and become an atheist. What Satan does is he calls God's goodness into question. What Satan does is he presents them with a counterfeit God. You see it in verse 1 right out of the gate. In verse 1 it says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, that's not what God said. God said, eat from every tree of the garden. Anyone you want. Except one. That's what God actually says. See, what Satan is doing is he wants, to come, he wants God to come across as more strict and more harsh and more restrictive than he actually is. Satan wants to emphasize God's prohibition instead of God's provision. And it works. Eve begins to believe it. You see it in verse 3 when she says that she can't eat of the tree and she can't touch it. But God never said that. Eve adds that second part. Eve adds, neither can we touch the fruit. Because she has begun to believe that God lacks generosity. See, here's what Satan's done. He's planted a seed of doubt about God's goodness in Adam and Eve. They begin to think in their hearts just like we do. We, they think, how can God be good and not give me this person, this thing, this position, this experience, this knowledge that I deem essential to my happiness? We begin to believe that God is holding us back. We think that he's keeping us from being all that we can be. There that you are in the midst of your temptation. You've bought into your strength. You've doubted the goodness of God. And when you've done that, you're rounding third, headed for home. Disobedience is right around the corner and it comes at you fast. If you look at verse 6, there's this rapid progression with Eve. It says, she saw, took, ate, shared the food with Adam, and then he ate. Rapid fire. Now, let's talk about gender for a little bit. We talked about this last week. We can talk about it here for a little bit. This looks like this is all Eve's fault, doesn't it? Well, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says that Adam is with her. If Adam's with her, he's not an innocent bystander. He knew the prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, perhaps even better than Eve did. He's the one who received it originally. So one can assume that it's his job to make sure Eve knows the prohibition, and maybe she doesn't. It's his job to make sure that the two of them don't follow it. But there he is. He stands silent. He stands passively by while the serpent has a field day with his wife. The other place you can look is just further on in chapter 3. It seems that God lays equal blame on Eve as he does Adam as he gives them both separate curses. You get to the New Testament and Adam is blamed twice for the fall of the world and Eve is blamed twice for the fall of the world. So they both bear equal responsibility for the fall of mankind. The important thing to see here isn't so much the gender piece, it's how contagious sin can be. So you've got to be aware of the influence that we have on others. You have to be aware of how much others have influence on you. See, when you're led astray, you always take people with you. This made me think about the last 20 years or so of ministry for me. Uh, as I've spent my time around college students, spent my time around young adults, I've spent time around people who've gone to state colleges and those who've gone to Christian colleges, those who've grown up in Christian families and those who haven't. 
I mean, you spend as much time as I have around all these kind of people in a state like Kentucky, you inevitably find a lot of people who walk away from the faith. And what I've noticed is that most of them walk away from the faith not because of a compelling argument against Christianity. It's usually for the same reason that Adam did. They just go along with others. It'd be very costly to speak up to appear about the prohibition. It'd be easier just to blend in. But the flip side is also true. Usually people aren't won over by some superior argument about Christianity. They're usually won through an attractiveness of a Christian witness. The sin can be contagious. Temptation ends in sin, but the story doesn't end with sin. The story ends with shame. It ends with the consequences of sin. You start seeing them in verse 7. In verse 7, their eyes are open. The serpent is telling them the truth in some ways. They do have newfound sight. And the thing that they see now that they never saw before was their nakedness. See the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25, says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. But right here in verse 7 of chapter 3, they're naked and ashamed. And because they're ashamed, they cover up with these fig leaves. And the fig leaves, they provide alienation from one another. There's now barriers to their relationship. Before the fall, their marriage was effortless. It was as effortless as breathing. It was completely natural, but not anymore. Now the relationship's going to have conflict. Now the relationship's going to take work. Now the NMC scale has gone way down. We have shame with one another. Verse 7. That's why they have fig leaves. Then in verse 8, you see their shame with God. Not because they're fig leaves, verse 8, but because they hide behind the trees. Can you imagine their conversation when they're standing there behind the tree? Whispering. They're probably saying, here come the lightning bolts. He said if we ate from the tree, we'd surely die. We're dead meat. We did the thing he told us we shouldn't. And I think the other would have responded, I can't believe we did that. How in the world, why did we trade in the utopia for this chaos? Why didn't we trust our creator who obviously loves us? And in the midst of that conversation, as they're hiding behind the trees, I think they heard a rustling in the grass, and there he was. God's looking for them while they're hiding. While they're hiding, God's seeking. And when Adam and Eve came out from behind the trees, God does, in fact, banish them from the garden. We'll read that next week. That's what death means. It means separation from God. It doesn't mean the lack of physiological function. See, God's been the source of their life, and they chose not to have that kind of access to God anymore when they sinned. But God's mercy shines through in the midst of their shame. You see it in just how long Adam lived. In Genesis 5, 5, it says that Adam lived for 930 years. So he doesn't kill Adam and Eve on the spot. He doesn't cast them dead. And Adam and Eve, they don't deserve to live that long. This is mercy. Then as you keep reading the rest of the Genesis account, you see that Adam and Eve were able to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. 
They didn't deserve that. Another place you see God's mercy is that he covers their shame. See, right there in verse 7, they're wearing these temporary fig leaves. And they wear them for just a few moments, and then God replaces them. And God replaces it with something more permanent. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, they understand that God's not going to sweep their sin under the rug. And on the way out of the garden, as they come out from behind the tree, and as they know they're going to be banished from utopia, God hands them this parting gift. He hands them these loincloths that are permanent. He says, here you go. I know you feel ashamed. You, you, I, 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 I could say you can sit in your shame forever. You can keep those uncomfortable, pathetic, pitiful fig leaves. But he doesn't do that. God extends mercy to them. See, that's the story of the Bible, brothers and sisters. Yes, God does, in fact, take sin seriously. He takes it so serious that his beloved son had to die for it. But he's also exceedingly gracious. I mean, we could, the history of the world could be that God stayed in the garden and never left. That God stayed in utopia. But he left the garden and continued to chase down his beloved people. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt, even though they didn't deserve it. He led them through the desert, even though they groaned, and he gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them a law to live by. He gives them, gave them leaders to show them the way. He gave them promises that a Messiah would come and make things right. But these people were about as reliable as Adam and Eve. They're about as reliable as me and you. They doubt God's goodness. They were hell-bent on being like their evil neighbors. They were more likely to set their own agenda than the one marked out by their God. Yet God did what he did for Adam and Eve. He continued to cover their shame with mercy. So have you been exposed this morning? Have you detected that same pattern of temptation to believe in your strength? A temptation to doubt God's goodness. And then you've acted in disobedience and now here you are, December 30th, 2022, at Arlington Christian Church at 9 a.m. and you're hiding. Now you're here, we can see you, but you're hiding. And you hope that no one's going to find you, other people or God. But friends, here's what I can promise you. I can promise to you that you'll find a God who's more concerned about covering, covering your shame than increasing it. I think you'll find a God that in Christ he remembers your sin no more. You'll find a God that made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that you might be the righteousness of God. You'll find a God who in Christ cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And you'll find a God whose son feasted with sinners. And here he is this morning, he's found you. Will you let him cover your shame this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a hard story. It hits very close to home. And Lord, I pray that we, though we see our sin, though we see our shame, that you would lead us to receive your mercy too. We pray these things in your name. Amen.